0: So some of you have heard my uh, stories. I've, I've talked about my teacher and the relationship I had with my teacher. It wasn't always um, milk and honey. It was uh, quite, uh, quite interesting. I look back on it, and uh, I value it so much, but it was strenuous. Um, I loved him dearly. still do. But at the same time, as much as I loved him, I think if I allowed myself to, especially during certain points of practice, as I allowed myself to kind of uh, think about the relationship and think about what I was learning and how I was learning it, I would say um, the phrase rat bastard showed up a great deal. (laughs) (laughs) I thought he was a rat bastard much of the time. Now, I, of course, never shared that with him directly. Why are you such a rat bastard? But on one occasion, uh, I'd kind of, I'd had enough. I've talked about, before I've written about how I was out. uh, It's 4 a.m., walking to the Zendo. I kind of bump into him, and I'm looking up at the stars, and uh, I'm seeing Orion, like jump out of the sky. It was the most beautiful thing. Just And I go, it's so beautiful. And he kind of shakes his head. And then, of course, Rat Bastard kind of came up, you know. Uh, I asked him about it later, especially after I, I saw what I felt was kind of a clumsy handling of uh, some teaching that he was doing. And I said, I... I I feel like I, I feel like there's a lot of anger at you. And he looked at me and he kind of smiled and he says, oh, well, that's because you still believe you are not me. I was like, oh, you got me. Um, yeah. I didn't believe. I didn't see... That there was connection, I saw separation, I projected all this stuff onto him. He's my guide. He's the one who's taking me where I need to go. But what was so cool at that moment is like, he's not taking me anywhere, I'm not already. And he very skillfully, I mean, I look back on him, he, he must have like kind of planned this, getting me to a point of no, damn it. and it worked with my personality. I mean, that's that's what you get I think when you're used to um, you know, having coaches beat the hell out of you in the uh, you know, in the pools, a water polo player. I mean, that's exactly what happened all the time. You know, more laps, more butterfly, more, you know. Are you hearing me? Yes, I I'm, I'm hearing you. I don't think you're hearing me swim. Oh, rat bastard, you know. And so I was very used to that kind of that kind of energy. I think what it ended up showing showing me, and what I'm trying to um, relate here as we sit tonight, is that until the teaching gets questioned, until the actual teaching itself gets questioned, and until the teacher herself or himself gets questioned. This becomes an intellectual exercise. And as long as it's an intellectual exercise, it is utterly, completely, and totally unbalanced. It has to be about the body. It has to be about the mind. It has to be, has to be about being. It has to be about everything actually holding this balance different aspects of our practice and sometimes we can get you know one-sided i for instance I, and i know this, this is a, i think a totally valid criticism of the way i approach this i'm not uh, i'm not real touchy-feely i'm not so much about love i'm not so much about the heart but that doesn't mean it's not in there doesn't mean it's not in the teaching doesn't mean it's not something we need to really allow allow to come forth We've got to have our mind engaged. We've got to read. We've got to read. You know, we've got to listen. Maybe we listen to podcasts. Maybe we read various books by various teachers and so forth. All oh, that is so helpful. We have to have a physical practice. You know, We have to take care of our bodies. In other words, beyond the cushion, we have to take care of our bodies. We have to, if it's not yoga, let it be something. Let it be some type of exercise. This actually allows the body to engage. But most importantly, there better dang well be meditation itself. There needs to be stillness every day. Every day. And if it's not a practice that you can, you know, you can carve out forty-five minutes to an hour every single day to do it consistently, is there another way you could negotiate so that every day there is at least a solid chunk of stillness? All of this stuff then supports a balanced practice, it supports awakening. And what tends to happen is when we get overbalanced in one direction, if we're all about heart, if we're all about wanting to feel good, if we're all about mind, we, all, we wanna know it before we can really you know, accept it. Or if we're all about meditation, we don't do anything else, or so if we're all just about a physical practice, what happens is it just can't configure quite as quickly as it might otherwise. So my job, teacher guy, is rat bastard, is to make sure that I keep pointing consistently. I'm not here to give you anything you don't already know. Everyone knows this. Everyone already there's a there's a deep felt sense of deep intuition. It's always already there. And my job is to keep pointing you in that direction depending on where you are. And I can tell more or less where you are if there's exchange. If I, if I sit with you in Dokusan, you know, we have a one-on-one meeting. That's really helpful. Then I can help tailor the teaching to you. If it's uh, in Q&A, great. If it's through emails, great. Whatever it is, but that communication becomes this really, really, it it's uh, becomes the landing strip And that's where the accident of awakening crashes, on that landing strip. That's a very strange metaphor, but I think you get the idea. It's not always pretty. Awakening is not, it's not something that the mind can manage. The Ego will never get enlightenment on its own terms. Ever. Much to its chagrin. But, That's not such a big deal as long as there is Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. Highest self that meets a teacher, Buddha. Teaching that meets the taught, Dharma. Group that sees themselves in each other, Sangha. Word yoga. My daughter learned how to say it, so she, yoga, yoga. It's kind of cute. And then, of course, I decided to explain to her what yoga meant, um, which got nowhere, but still, um, yoga essentially means union, or uh, it's a, a union with the source whatever that source might be. And so I mentioned uh, a few minutes ago, prior to the sitting, that in my little introductory uh, story time, that uh, there are ways of practice where we, we try to balance ourselves with our, our thinking, our feeling, our doing, and our being. And that's essentially where practice can kind of kind of take off. We feel oftentimes, as was mentioned last week, quite nicely. It's like, you know, I do all these things and then I feel alienated. Uh, I thought the whole idea was to feel connected. And beyond the feeling, that connection arises effortlessly. Beyond the thinking, that connection arises and shows up effortlessly. Beyond all that stuff, it's always already there. The key to this is that whether we are working on feeling compassion for people, you know, even though we, d- we might not feel it, okay, or we're trying to think our way into, through, around, or Above awakening. Or whether we're trying to do everything just perfectly. The key to this is the being. Okay. In other words, just being supports an appropriate measure of our doing, thinking, and feeling. And how do we arrive at the being? Well, there are a couple of ways. And I'm going to walk us through just... You know, kind of how this how this tends to unfold. Um, I might break this talk at some future time down into some component pieces. I'm going to give you the survey right now, just so you are uh, you're hip to that. Um, but when we start, <clears throat> excuse me, looking at how we can support awakening, we need a foundation. It's the most the, the most important thing is a foundation. And I am of the mind. I've been convinced of this, um, having looked at it from two different sides, that we can approach awakening in a number of different ways. Uh, there is an entire school of thought that says you just you be nice to everybody. Just be nice to everybody. That's all that matters anyway. So if you're nice to everybody, awakening will happen. Um, I'm really in favor of being nice to everybody. I'm totally in favor of that. I just have never seen it show up as a, an awakening to the truth beyond name and form. I just haven't seen it. And I've been around people in all sorts of different countries who, you know, uh, are awake. Uh, but that's not how they got there. Um, so I could be wrong. I'm certainly not attached to this view, it's just not the center of gravity of the way that I'm teaching. The way that seems to work is when there is, uh, instead of just loving everybody, the loving begins to spontaneously come out of a wisdom that occurs when we sit still. That the most important thing we can do to generate a foundation for this path, one that doesn't Get rattled or rocked by the earthquakes that were bound on cover. Uh, what we really begin to look at here is meditation. You know, just meditation. And meditation, the, the way I'm referring to it here at least, is, it, uh, is a, a stillness practice. And quite literally that's what I mean, stillness. That we can find a space as we not only sit physically still, but also that there is a mental stillness. In Christianity, there's contemplative prayer, which is so beautiful. It's, it's akin to the Hindu mantra. Uh, essentially, it's where, you know, Hail Mary, Hail Mary, Hail Mary, Hail Mary. You know, just any, any phrase that's repeated over and over and over again it tends to still the mind. This is exactly the way a mantra works tend not to use mantras. It was never, you know, I never had one thrown at me. Um, But if that works for you, by all means, I think that's great. Um, (laughs) My training was to have uh, absolutely nothing to work with. (laughs) Just follow the breath. That's all they ever said. Just, you know, follow the breath. Follow the breath and report back. And I think this is fine, too. This is a great great way of doing it, just being really cognizant of what's going on with the breath. What's going on in the body? What are those thoughts that are arising? Being able to do all this, actually, sets us up. It sets us up for a different kind of, and this is where most of you are probably really good, sets us up for a different kind of contemplation contemplation should not be confused with meditation meditation is stilling everything contemplation is letting what get really active it's letting what get active mind, Mind. thought, yeah, very good Lisa was doing this, So that's what you meant, right Mm -hmm. thought, yeah, it allows the thought Mm -hmm. to begin to unfold, the thinking to now, hopefully This thinking, now that it's grounded in a meditative practice, is something that actually can give rise to revelation. Um, Oftentimes, you will there'll be situations where people are just—it's—it's almost as if their bodies are beaten into a pulp with all the sitting, which, by the way, is very stressful. (laughs) <laughs> I know that sounds paradoxical and odd. It is. But uh, it's incredibly stressful to be still meditatively. In doing this, it seems to allow for just the right peck from the mother hen to bust through that egg. Just the right words, just the right phrase, either from a Dharma talk or from a book. It's like, bam! oh, and then this revelatory experience begins to show up. The biggest mistake is, for people, practitioners, is that once revelation happens, the mind immediately jumps in and starts clinging to it. Oh, I just had a glimpse of the absolute. Ah, that means, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Da-da, da-da, da-da. And he said, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Da-da, 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 you know? And what happens is, that revelatory moment then gets diminished and turned into, instead of revelation and opening, it becomes a contemplative exercise. So it's been reduced. <laughs> My teacher, you know, the rat bastard, yeah, he, uh, said, he said it uh, uh, best. He said, it just gets defiled. If we ever cling to our experiences, they just get defiled. You must let go of them it's more to let go of. Any experience you could possibly have is just more to let go of. And the ego that wants to manage and own this thinks that that's just total just ridiculous. That is total BS. When in fact it's a sacred truth. If if revelation is to actually meet the ground of our being, okay, and the ground of our being is to become opened and tilled by revelation, so that the seeds of awakening can blossom all over the place, we have to be able to let it go. And that's exactly what builds upon the next piece of this, which is freedom. Letting go is freedom. Letting go means non-resistance. Letting go does not mean giving in. Letting go means we are no longer clinging, it means we're no longer attached to any view to any feeling from this revelation, this freedom this freedom from fear this freedom from addiction, from craving from suffering begins to just quite naturally unfold as long as we're not clinging to anything. The natural expression of participating in the world from this place is compassion. And so this goes back to what I said earlier. We can try going with compassion first, but actually the stillness that leads to contemplation, that leads to revelation, that leads to freedom, that wisdom, taking that one first, that path first, seems to allow for this being loving to resonate and get expressed in really, really powerful ways, much more authentically. We begin to have an inexhaustible supply, so to speak. So that's pretty much where it takes off. From there, we start recognizing, um, I don't know, I've got some Irish in me. I like calling it the luck, the luck factor. If you are gonna get psychological and Jungian, you might call it synchronicity, you might call it something else, but uh, we start seeing that our life shows up in different unbelievable patterns. Uh, most everybody in here is successful in their own way. And I don't think any of you, I'm not trying to put words in your mouths, but I don't think any of you have ever not had some type of experience of right place, right time. This begins to become part of the expression of living from this spaciousness. We also begin to see that there is a faith that arises. And the faith I'm talking about is one that is unbound by belief. I don't know who said it, but I love the line. I I tweeted it today. Uh, It just was kind of flying around in my head. It said, uh, belief tends to be for those that are insecure. Faith is for those that are absolutely undefended as long as that faith doesn't turn into a belief, you're golden. Okay? That faith, the kind of faith we're talking about is a trust. It's a trust. The universe universe is going to provide every single thing that I need to awaken. Everything. It's not going to give me necessarily everything I want. Oh, no, no, but I read the secret and I know that if I just try to manifest that Ferrari... It'll be it. sorry, Charlie. That's that's not what we're talking about here. I mean, knock yourself out. I, I think that's great if you, if the uh, Ferrari thing is what you want. That's great. But actually, where this practice is going is it's it's actually showing you that you've always had the Ferrari, and as a result, you don't need it. But I don't have a Ferrari. Yes, you're right. You don't. I mean, I'm not. I'm speaking metaphorically here. Okay, but it's it's you start realizing it's not something that's needed. <clears throat> anyway, so when we start entering into this practice from a place where belief is no longer covering up insecurity, but we're actually kind of trusting the Dharma, we're trusting the teaching. We start trusting, uh, start trusting our luck. We start trusting the patterns, the great patterns kind of fall into place. We start seeing that uh, reaping and sowing are very natural. This idea of karma, as I'm putting it in this context, we reap what we sow, we start recognizing that what we are sowing is something that is not bound by personal. It's something that is totally open it's about sharing it's impersonal it's giving our activity okay our doing so to speak we've touched on here some thinking we've touched on here with some feeling our doing our karmic activity comes from a place that is no longer bound by a separate sense of self and I but it's actually all And a really fascinating paradox kind of reveals itself here. Um, Ramana Maharshi, a great mid-20th century mystic, had a line. uh, The world is not real. Only Brahman is real. The world is Brahman, or the world is not real. The world is a dream. Only God is real. <coughs> God shows up as the world. We start kind of, huh? Well, this starts making total sense. Or in Zen, we call it a mountain. First it's a mountain, then it's not a mountain, and then it's a mountain after enlightenment, it's a mountain, we start seeing that it is totally possible to, to I sometimes use the, use the verb surf, we can surf between these two worlds of the, uh, what we might call in, in Christian terms at least, um, the imminent and the transcendent. We start recognizing they are totally at play all the time and we're equally comfortable in both. We can express ourselves fully through each, in each capacity. We start seeing that it is all actually a deep singularity, but this deep singularity is multifaceted. So what stands in the way? Um, a couple of things. Real super fast here. And again, we'll, we'll touch on this more. I think this is a very rich topic, and I'm going to try to explore it, I think, uh, in the weeks ahead. But what gets in the way is clinging, number one. Ah, okay, clinging of the mind towards ideas, towards thoughts, convictions, Certitude, it's a form of clinging. Our thoughts, our beliefs, our judgments, all of these things, while useful as tools, can in fact diminish our ability to foster uh, and support an awakening if we're not very careful to have an open relationship to this thought, as I've talked about before. We begin to question. We begin to get curious. We start um, getting beyond what what, uh, we can call the this or that, or dualism. Black, white, right, wrong, yes, no, you, me. Good, bad type thing. We start moving past that. We can also do the same thing with feelings. I want to feel good. I had a very interesting discussion with... uh, uh, online with someone who is talking about this you know this deep struggle that they're you know that they're having they you know they've gotten to a point in their life where they don't want to be pushed you know they want they want to escape the daily grind you know there's enough stress they they want to escape that grind And this practice is making them more deeply aware of it. And my response, as gently as I could, say it was, that's exactly right. That's exactly what this is. This is about recognizing that there really is no escape. So how are you going to deal with that? If if the wish, the predominant wish, is to escape, oh, this is the worst thing you could do. Join a pot club. (laughs) Go to bars regularly during the day or something. I mean, that's going to help better than this. This goes in exactly the other direction. It forces this studying of where we are exactly right here, right now. Oh, my God, I can't hide. Mm Mm-hmm. You're right. There's no hiding. Hiding is what is non-enlightenment, so to speak. (laughs) Hiding is what keeps us immersed in delusion. Numbing ourselves. This is not about numbing. This is about really feeling. It's not about, I like this, I don't like that. Remember, I mentioned how it's like... (laughs) It can't be on ego's terms. Awakening is not on ego's terms. It doesn't care if you like it or not. It's Here's what is. Deal. Which is why I, I know, um, I, I'm sure I can be kind of a difficult personality in this capacity because I, I, I think someone once called me a cross between a drill sergeant and a clown. <laughs> Which sounds like Stephen King's it or something. <laughs> you know? It's exactly the type of person you probably don't want to have. (laughs) Have you guys seen that ad? Have I talked about this already? Have I talked about this? Oh my God, it just cracks me up. I don't know. It said, uh, if you had a, a drill sergeant would make a horrible therapist. You know what I'm talking about? Oh my God, it just floors me. I watch it every time and I reverse it on the DVR and watch it again. Because that guy, actually, he was, he was a drill sergeant. He was the one who was in full metal jacket and so forth. And he, um, uh, <laughs> he's sitting there as a therapist, and the guy says, well, I don't know, it's, it's making me very sad, the color yellow or something like ridiculous like that. And he says, oh yeah, you know what makes me sad? You, why don't we just take a trip to Nambi Pambi land or whatever and he keeps... <laughs> Get some self-esteem. Yeah, 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 Get some self-esteem, you know. And the thing that is really, really fascinating about this is that this is, this is, I mean, we can look at therapy. Therapy on one level really helps to create the structure of ego. This is good, okay. It's just that that's going to be systematically dismantled here. Now, it's good to have the structure first, although not totally required. It's good to have some sense of structure so that the space in between can be revealed. That discontinuity. You know how in physics we talk about there's, there's, there's space between vibration. There is space between thought. There is space between the inhalation and the exhalation. That discontinuity... Suddenly when that begins to show up for us, we start to be able to view not only our lives but every situation from a place of deep, resonant spaciousness. My job is to keep pointing. Your job is to continually assess as to whether or not you want to make the next step. And it is totally fine if you don't want to make the next step. It's absolutely fine. I will suggest that taking that next step is pretty badass, man. It's pretty cool. But it's not, it's not for the faint of heart. It takes courage. It takes courage. Anyway, um, I've babbled on a little bit too long, but uh, we'll revisit this. that we become balanced once again in feeling, that we begin to feel. If you're someone who lives, lives in your mind, it's utterly critical that you really, really begin to study the question, how am I feeling, several times a day. Thinking. Have a contemplative life. Question. Question the teaching. Question me, by golly. Question everything that supports an awakened approach to thought. Make sure there's activity. Make sure you're actually doing stuff for your body, for your mind. That you're actually engaging. That you're not just sitting on your cushion in your apartment, except on Monday nights when you come down here. Make sure that humanity still exists. And that's one way of doing it, but I I think that also really engaging in the world is key. Get out there. People need you. And then lastly, being. (laughs) Making sure that there is meditation so that that discontinuity that i was just referring to becomes something that actually reveals tremendous potential tremendous offering that that spaciousness reminds us of everything we've always already known about ourselves and what we share with all beings usually what I, usually the way I, I posit the the idea of thought is that thought has to, first of all, it has to be, there's movement. Okay? Thinking non-movement means that there is no thought. And no thought, in Zen we call it no mind. It's that discontinuity. Okay? Um, thinking has two major aspects to three three major aspects to it. It's in the past, or it's a memory, it's some type of evaluation or judgment, or it's a plan or some future thing that hasn't happened yet. All thought is on that continuum. And judgment can occur in either. You can have, in other words, you can have, another, uh, you can have a, 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 some plan that you've got cooking in your head, right? And then you judge it. Or you can have some past... Uh, experience, some memory and then you can judge it. So it's, it's not as primal, so to speak, as as past or future. It can be applied to both but that's that's kind of where the mind is utterly in, at home. Does that sound familiar? Is it something like that? Okay. I'm sitting now um, <clears throat> daily and I, it, maybe I've just never noticed before but my mind now is more active than ever it seems like. And I I don't, I'm not sure what it is that reminds me that I'm sitting. So to pay attention, that's a thought or thinking, and then I go back to the breath. Yeah, yeah. and that's that's a, hey, that's incredible practice. What, what you can do is you can just you can call it out. That just simple discriminating awareness, not judgment, but ah, thinking. I mean, that's mm-hmm. technically that's a judgment, you know, and that's a much better judgment to have than. This meditation would go fine if we could get all these bats out of here, you know, or something like that, which speaks to some type of bizarre, you know, mental condition. Okay, so, so you've got that going for you. <laughs> but the cool thing here is that as we recognize the mind just starting to whirl, all we have to do is literally call it Thinking. And once we do that enough, we start recognizing that there is something that's making that call. What's that? The witness. Mm, The witness. And the witness is available, whether there's discontinuity or space, no mind, or mind is there. It's something bigger. And every, every person in this room right now is experiencing the witness. You're all witnessing what's going on. And so we begin to see that as amazingly powerful because it's prior to time. The witness can see time. If it's prior to time, the witness is what? It's eternal. So we begin to develop, quite literally, a life that is sourced from the source. But it's done consciously now as opposed to blindly. Keep thinking. <laughs> so I'm perplexed and a little bit confused about this idea um, of us all being like interconnected or- separate. I think basically the way the story went was he said, "Well, you still believe in a separate self." That's why you think you think I'm, you know, you're upset with me because you still believe in a separate self, which was kind of obnoxious on the one hand, but on the other hand, he's saying something. Finally, you and I share. Well, let me before I before I answer, let me make sure I'm really clear on what the question is. Um the question is, is that, did I understand that he's saying that we're all not separate? And if we're not separate, then how can we sit to witness another's behavior and actions? We can witness another's behavior and actions. And so what we have is all this biological material. Okay. Our eyes, our noses, our mouths, our skins, our ears. Those five senses continually show us that we are separate. And then we have a sixth sense, the mind, the thinking okay, that goes into past and future continually that also tends to reify or strengthen that, that belief that we are separate. But then the minute we start getting into this amazing spaciousness that can actually watch the mind, wit- you know, witness the mind, so to speak, watch all those senses at play, we're aware of something much deeper that is not separate from anything else. For instance, let's just play this out a little bit here. Would you agree that we are sharing what we're breathing right now? So we're interconnected, right? The oxygen that we're sharing right now actually works to nourish, fortify, build, and destroy what each of us has bodily. Would you agree with that? Okay. So And every single one of us is manifesting as, you know, arising and ceasing based on the foods that we eat, that we eat from a shared earth, a shared sunshine, shared rain, right? We really share everything. There isn't anything that's not shared. In fact, if you were to look at your hand right now, the atoms that make up the molecules that make up the cells to your very hand have been around since the Big Bang. Same is true for the nice lady sitting next to you, right? We're all subatomic spin with different names and different identities that we have made based on the mistaken assumption that all that exists are our five senses plus mind. When, in fact, there's so much more. And that's where this teaching is pointing us. That's the direction. It's that there's more. Yes, we're separate. But there's more. We're also totally connected. And this separation is where we tend to lock up. Separate but interconnected. At the same, simultaneously. Yes. Yes. -hmm. Except the thing is, most of us live in the separate And we get glimpses of the interconnected every once in a while. Or we've heard about it and we can intellectually justify it. But it's not felt. It's not realized. There's no revelatory experience of, oh my God, I am stars. But once that happens, and meditation is what supports it, okay, simultaneously i think is both. the ego thinks it can but you're saying that's where you get to with meditation too. i'm saying what i'm saying what that you can be separate and in interconnected simultaneously i'm saying that we are only ever separate but connected simultaneously and i'm also saying that that separation is pretty much a joke it's it's a very small part. It's a small truth that thinks of itself as being absolute and complete. And so, what meditation shows meditation repeatedly shows us that lie. That the that the partial truth has a is a is a redheaded stepchild of something bigger. That was my little interpretive dance there tonight. You only get one of those tonight, but the. <laughs> so um, but this is a, I mean keep playing it out you know we think we're separate and if we think we're separate we think we're you know we're atomized I, I sometimes like to describe it as a jewel that's got tons of facets you know it's like it's a wave separate from the ocean it's a separate from other waves as somebody who's done a little bit of surfing Man, there are some waves that are amazing and some that are not so amazing. Okay, so there is individuation, definitely, but there's also this deep singularity we call the ocean. And the goal of this work, among many, is to actually let us into an availability where we walk into that recognition. Or that recognition of... Wholeness, in the face of all this in us that believes in in um, uh, separateness, atomization, we're just rocked. And meditation allows for that disaster to at least have a better chance at crashing. You're on now, dude. I'll make up a question. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't mean to. If no. no okay. Uh, the wanting to control mm-hmm. people, places, things, governments, events, and so forth. Yeah. What's going on? With, is that a clinging? Yeah. It yeah, it's a clinging to this is the way it should be. Okay. And when in fact disaster has a great way of inspiring giving in us. Say so, yeah. again. Well... I had someone who came to me in a, uh, um, a moment of incredible crisis uh, at the uh, re-election of uh, George W. Bush, and it was it was quite it was an amazing reaction. And I'd known this person for quite some time, and and uh, you know as a as a practitioner, I mean, in, in my job, I mean. What am I supposed to do? I'm not supposed to. I had no interest in making her feel better necessarily. I mean, I was felt bad for her. She's freaking out. And basically, the way our, our dialogue began to unfold was that, you know, people don't get it. This guy is the devil. This, you know, we, America, is totally screwed. The rest of the world is screwed because of our ignorance. I hate the South. I hate, you know, I mean, all this <laughs> stuff started coming up. going, man, that's pretty cool. I mean, I didn't say that to her, but it's like these amazing stories. And she was clinging to non-George W. Bush. All right? Which is fine. But that clinging... Um, didn't allow for any equanimity to arise. In fact, she was in a a place of kind of quasi-desperation, which is exactly how plenty of people have felt when the natural universal reaction to George Bush got elected. His name was Barack Obama. There's no way Barack Obama could have been elected, in my view, um, had people not been inspired at some deep level to shift gears. And now we're seeing the pendulum swing in the other direction. And, I I mean, you can get really bent out of shape over that. You can get really bent out of shape over watching, you know, circus events that, you know, play themselves off as news daily. You can do that. Um, But I don't think it's very helpful. I think what's more helpful is if you recognize where it's sticking. And if you can see where it's sticking or where it's, ow, you know, where the twinges are, what you can actually do at that moment is recognize where you're clinging. And that's what this work is about. So it's a, it's, it's a practice I don't necessarily recommend, but go ahead, watch MSNBC or watch Fox or watch, you know, any any news show that you want, any cable news network that you feel really uncomfortable with. Turn it on and try to remain open to what's being said because it'll inspire most likely it'll inspire a very interesting reaction and if that reaction is one that's you know that's loving it's compassionate that recognizes that you know man this is a really loud voice as opposed to that's the devil we tend to do things when disaster strikes when it really strikes people Get out of their lazy boy recliners and put their channel changers down. And amazing stuff can happen, whether you're, you know, you're a Dharma student or not. And so sometimes I think when really, really horrible things happen, it, it creates an opportunity for the deepest kind of generosity, the deepest kind of giving to show up. Are there any tricks of the trade to catch yourself? In the- yeah. One. Meditate. Surprise. (laughs) Thanks for coming, everybody. Appreciate it.